Please be seated. It's an honor to introduce our lecturer tonight, Joanna Drucker, the Breslauer Professor of Bibliographical Studies at UCLA. Professor Drucker earned her bachelor's in fine arts from the California College of Arts and Crafts and her PhD from the University of California at Ber Berkeley. She's internationally known for her work in the history of graphic design, topography, experimental poetry, fine art, and digital humanities. She's published many books and articles on subjects ranging from alphabet historiography to the relation of visual and poetic representation. Her book, Graphasis, Visual Forms of Knowledge Production, appearing in 2014, drew the attention of the Mellon-supported St. John's faculty study group here two years ago. Graphasis is the study of visual production of knowledge. The need for visual epistemology has become clearer with the increasing use of the graphical user interface on digital devices. In addition to her academic work, Professor Drucker is well known for her book art and her graphic art, recently the subject of a retrospective exhibition, Druckworks, that traveled to colleges and universities across the country. And in 2014, she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I'd like to remind faculty, staff, and students that all are invited to attend the seminar with Professor Drucker tomorrow morning from 10 to 11.30 in the Hartle Room of the Bar Buchanan Center. The subject will be Humanities Approaches to Graphical Display. Professor Drucker's lecture and other activities on campus have been graciously supported by the Mellon Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Professor Joanna Drucker. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's been really interesting to spend the day getting um, a sense of the culture and the curriculum and the thinking processes uh, that take place here. And I can say I can't really think of a better audience for this talk after the conversations that we had today um, in the morning in the lunchtime group. I see some of them sitting in the back there and, uh, and, and uh, um, with the tutors and, and so forth. So uh, I'm hoping that this talk will uh, stimulate some of your own thinking on this topic and uh, feedback to the way I'm trying to formulate an argument for and about visual epistemology. So, visual epistemology. There's two terms there. And the first thing we need to do is think about what those two terms mean in relation to each other, what each brings to what's essentially an argument simply by their combination, kind of assertion. And then to consider what it means to put them in relationship to humanities and to think about a humanistic perspective and to think about hum humanities methods. And then I would say the fourth part is to consider how this has a particular meaning at this moment in relationship to digital activity and what goes on in the digital humanities and how the digital humanities engagement with the production of visual materials to navigate the cultural record to analyze and make use of um, extractions from the cultural record in the form of data and other quantitative techniques, how all of these things um, create a kind of urgency 
uh, to think about what kinds of skills and areas of expertise we need to develop in order to read the visual artifacts by which we receive so much of our information in today's world, uh, what, what those tools and techniques might be, why do we need them. So there's then uh, sort of four parts to this. Um, though the first part is sort of the boxcar of what is visual epistemology. Then there's the question of what does it mean to speak about epistemology and visual epistemology in relationship to the humanities and its intellectual traditions. And then there's the kind of press of urgency that I feel in relationship to uh, things digital, um, and in particular in the digital humanities. So those are the four parts to what I'm going to talk about, and I'll touch on each of them um, in turn in a sort of uh, fairly systematic but not entirely uh, systematic way. So let's begin then with thinking about the visual. And uh, I thought I would start here. Um, so uh, you can take a look at an image like this. This is a screen capture from simply doing a Google search on Mona Lisa. So uh, tell me, which of these is the Mona Lisa? All right, it's an interesting question. Um, and what it means to ask that question um, has in it a bunch of assumptions about how we know. How do we know what it is we're looking at? How do we process it in relationship to what kinds of mental images, references, and so forth? How, how do we even begin to, to recognize which among these images might be the Mona Lisa? And, um, and then to think about how its identity as a cultural icon and artifact lends itself to so much manipulation and transformation. So that each of these independently, but certainly all of them in aggregate, are a, you know, an amazing sort of you know, set of annotations, comments, and recyclings of a familiar image. So there's lots of things, um, I think, to, to consider. But when we think about images, typically, right, when we think about visuality, we have to break visuality down into several parts. And the first thing is, um, w when we talk about visuality and visual forms of knowing, is that there are all of the people who study the sensory apparatus. Right? They look at um, sensation, perception, cognition, and processing of, of light and visual signals in the neocortex and what that involves. Second part of visuality as an experience phenomenon is the question of the mental image. What is it? You know, what, what is that cognitive process? What is going on there? Is it actually a picture in your head? Or is it some other integrated cognitive function that borrows from other channels within the sensoria? Um, you know, how's it working? How's it stored? How is it integrated? How is, how is it processed? So we have the sensory input. We have the mental images. And then we have the whole world of representations and their conventions, their codification, their lineage, their history, and the way that we decipher and read them. So all of those have to be taken into account when we're talking about the visual. Sensation, cognition, convention, right, representation. So how does that relate then to epistemology? What are, we, what are we gonna talk about when we talk about epistemology? And why, the big question is why has the visual been excluded from the domain of epistemology because it has been systematically, categorically, and, you know, sort of virulently um, exiled from the domain of epistemology. 
So why is that and should that be the case? And I'm going to argue it should not be the case that there is a form of knowing that is specific to the visual that we ought to use not only to um, you know, expand our category of what's in the visual, in epistemology, but perhaps also to take it a step further, and that is to push back against the legacy and tradition of philosophical constructs of epistemology and say, hmm, maybe we should think about that again. So just that, we'll just do that. All right, and again, you all, I know from talking to you, are much better skilled in the traditions of philosophical um, understandings of epistemology than I am. So I'm going to expect a whole bunch of, of response to this um, and questions. So by epistemology, um, traditionally, classically, um, we mean justified belief and justified true belief. So what might it mean to have a visual form that can participate in justified belief and why does philosophy exile the, um, the visual from that domain? And my assertion is going to be that the um, kind of concept of epistemology as a form of knowledge might have to be expanded into an understanding, and I mean the word deliberately, an understanding of ways of knowing rather than constituted um, objects of knowledge. So we'll see where that goes. So um, with that sort of preface, I'll again uh, just mention at the outset here um, why I think the digital plays a role. Um, and here you see uh, an, uh, an image by Martin Wattenberg, very uh, skilled and well-known uh, information designer. And it's a history of the Wikipedia and with gaps in it. And, you know, the question is why the gaps and what are they doing, but also what are the patterns, what's being shown here. So um, we could decipher this image. I could give you the backstory. I could help you understand what the color coding is and, and what it's indicating, what it's, what it's a surrogate for. But to show you its surrogacy would only be to kind of put it into one level of representation to say it stands for certain um, you know, attributes that have been extracted from uh, a phenomenon. But it wouldn't really get to the complexity of that process of surrogate production. How many levels of decision-making and what we were talking about this morning, parameterization or the, the, the terms on which quantitative data is modeled in advance of its being produced, parameterization, and other factors have been decided modeled, and then concealed in the final outcome. So again, for me, the, uh, the questions that arise when we try to recover that process of intellectual thought in looking at a data visualization are ethical questions as well as intellectual ones. What can't we know by looking at this? And what aspects of knowledge production are rendered actually inaccessible through a presentation like Wattenberg's? And it's not a condemnation of Wattenberg. He's a very skilled uh, designer. And why the humanities then? Visuality, knowledge, this needn't have anything to do with the humanities. The humanities for me are a set of methods, not merely a set of artifacts, and objects. And the methods of the humanities, I would assert, 
are fundamentally distinct from those of the natural sciences and empirical sciences more generally, such as the social sciences in their most quantitative and empirical mode. And humanities methods are fundamentally grounded in a belief in hermeneutics, interpretation. And interpretation always assumes an observer as part of the production of an interpretive act. So hermeneutics is about understanding and in its being about understanding, it is also about inner standing, being in relation to an artifact, an experience, a phenomenon, a text, an image, an event, and so forth. In that sense, humanities methods are observer-dependent because they are interpretive and hermeneutic, and by being observer-dependent, they also take into account the fact that any position from which I produce an interpretation is rooted in my historical, cultural, and personal circumstances, and that therefore the knowledge that I am able to produce is partial, and it's historically determined, and it's always going to have a certain inflection to it that it cannot be universal, it will always be made in each instance anew. That doesn't mean it can't have shared properties, that it can't be conventionalized, or that it can't be communicated, but it's a fundamentally different approach to the concept of knowledge than the concept of knowledge that informs and underpins empirical investigation, which assumes that there's an observer-independent possibility for knowledge production and for understanding universal laws that um, pertain within the operations of the world. All right, so you see where I'm coming from. So let's go back and talk for a minute about the visual and some of its properties, those things that belong proper, properly, as it were, to visuality and not to other uh, domains of representation or perception. Here we have the classic misunderstanding of visuality. Right? This is not really what happens. Believe it or not, a picture of that cat does not go into your head. All right, it, it does not happen, much as we might like it to, okay? And um, the, again, the, the, but this kind of mechanical reduction of the sense that there's a kind of sensory provocation, then there's a cognitive processing, and then there's a mental image, and then it comes back to the cat as perceived, right? Um, no. Um, so it's far more complicated than that. And again, you know, the current physiological research suggests a number of things that are counter to this me mechanical model. One is that um, we see what we know. And we'll see that in a moment in terms of images. There's no innocent eye. You're actually not fully capable of seeing something if you have no knowledge of it. So, I mean, literally, all right, images of beached whales observed up close have features that no whale possesses as a biological specimen. How's that happen? Okay, the next thing is that the fundamental theory of, of cognitive framing is essential to all cognitive activity. So you need the framework in order to actually process the um, sensory information into some kind of comprehension. Thirdly, the physiology of the eye and of the retina and, uh, and the processing apparatus change as a result of repeated stimuli. 
So you may become much more sensitive. Your eye literally changes in its capacity to perceive if, for instance, you're exposed to a gazillion colors of green because you happen to be somebody who has to taste you know, or test a certain plant for its properties, right? Just as your tongue and your nose become much more attuned if you're a wine taster, right? And this is actually a physiological adaptation, not just an increased building of cognitive categories. So all of this mechanistic model has to be modified here um, in terms of what happens. So what are the forms of knowledge that get legitimacy while the visual is being exiled to the margins at best, and to other planets and other countries at worst. Um, the models of knowledge, and here I'll invoke Rene Tom, um, philosopher and mathematician, um, who said there's only two forms of uh, expression and manifestation that legitimately encode knowledge. One is mathematics, and the other is language. And both together, even better, okay? The prejudice against the visual became so extreme in 19th century mathematics that Moritz Patch, a mathematician, actually made the statement that a geometrical proof could only really be considered a good proof if it could exist without the figure. That's pretty extreme. Bertrand Russell was also opposed to the visual aspects of mathematics. He had some aversion to it. We could analyze these people, we could psychoanalyze these people, we could figure out what their issues were, but nonetheless, it's here for us to cope with. And yet we know that visuality does things as a knowledge-producing system that can't be done by other things. And geometry, which again, you all know quite well, is one of those domains in which the visual, as well as the tactile and the haptic, are essential tools of analysis and understanding. So here we have, again, you're, I'm embarrassed to talk about this in, in front of you, but here we have the, the proof, you know, that for any line, an equilateral triangle can be constructed. So, okay, fine. We see that this is a graphical proof. It relies upon graphical techniques, and therefore it is inherently visual in various ways. But we could say no. I mean, I could be more expatched for a moment. There's nothing visual about it. The visual is an aid. The visual demonstrates some principles that are logical principles, mathematical principles. Um, it doesn't depend upon the geometric. However, the problem with that is that there are forms of mathematical computation that were used in advance of digital computers invention, such as graphical calculus, that used graphical means to generate answers, to generate outcomes. And again, the answer was in the working, of the, uh, working out of the graphical problem. <coughs> there are also graphical expressions of mathematical relations that are specific to the way in which the mathematical um, structure can be understood. And not diagrams are among these because the way that they flatten on the plane allows you to see the sequence of under and over relations in a highly specific way that's fairly difficult to translate into um, an abstract formula. So the visual does certain things, even within the mathematical domain. Now, I would argue 
that the mathematical, in terms of its notational stability and its claim to justified uh, belief, is also problematic. One of the amazing intellectual achievements of Homo sapiens, and believe me, these days there seem to be fewer and fewer, um, but one of the um, amazing achievements is the capacity to abstract from a set of objects into the concept of a quantity, right? At what point did we come to see that holding up three fingers could be abstracted into a single concept of three, right? And threeness, that threeness would be a thing. But what is threeness? The threeness of the fingers, to me, does not match the threeness of the one, two, three sequence. So is three a sequence? Is three in the second image of the, of the one, two, three fingers, is that actually six? Like, what happens to three as a concept there? And what about three disparate things? Is the threeness of three completely disparate things, the cloud, yesterday, and the state of California, is their threeness the same threeness as the three fingers? What about three really big things? Is big three the same as three really little things? So is threeness really as stable as Renee Tom would like us to think? So I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that threeness has quite the kind of stability that Tom uses to guarantee its notational and epistemological capacities. He says mathematics and language are the two stable notational systems and that the problem with visuality, which we know is, is true, is that visuality does not have a stable notational system. You cannot break an image down into modular parts in the way that you can break language or uh, mathematical um, expressions down into regular, stable, smaller units. Nonetheless... We use visual forms and visual expressions as a way to record our, our, our experience of um, phenomena and to encode those phenomena in stable notational forms that then conventionalize our understanding and pass on as belief. And, of course, one of the first things that happens in human culture is that we observe the stars, right? We, we map the heavens long before we map the earth because the heavens are accessible to us. We can see them. So the mapping of stars becomes one of the sort of shared experiences across cultures without communication among them. We all map the heavens. So, um, so we know that visuality can codify knowledge in, that, in, in various ways. We know that visuality can also exemplify um, knowledge and exemplify uh, categories and attributes. So here we see swatches of cloth, and their purpose here is not to express knowledge, but to exemplify specificity. Do you want this kind of cloth or that kind of cloth, this color or that color? Exemplification in visual form cannot be substituted for with either numbers or language. I can have a surrogate, I can put a number to each of these samples and refer to it that way, and the number becomes a surrogate for the swatch, as would a title, but the swatch in its inherent properties contains information that cannot be duplicated either by the numbers or by the, by the words. 
that kind of knowledge is merely considered a kind of object, object knowledge, a kind of designation, kind of you know, identification. Right? It's not considered propositional. So the, the, the argument then from the philosophers is, fine, you can have that kind of knowledge if you want to. It's merely a designation, right? It's a, it's a surrogacy, it's a representation. But it's not propositional. They say, I don't, they, they, they refuse to believe that the visual can be propositional. Um, so again, on we go, and we see that um, observations of the natural world will lead to models, and the models then carry within them assumptions um, and uh, 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 concepts that are not even going to match the actual phenomena under observation, that the cultural and mental investment in the model is so great that it overcomes, actually, the experience of seeing. You see what you know. So the notion that the mo motion of the planets must follow perfect circles is an obstacle, an impediment to the actual calculation of, um, of orbits. Because until you can sort of figure out there's not circles on circles on circles on circles, but in fact there's something else going on, um, you, are, you are blocked from being able to move forward. So here the visual becomes a kind of obstacle. And in fact, I could argue that scientific progress has to do with the sort of willingness to concede the perfect form for the imperfect form, um, the anomaly for the general um, and universal. There are other kinds of, of knowledge, visual knowledge, and now I'm just talking about ways of knowing, whether it's observation or encoding. Um, that again are specific to the visual, and here uh, what you're looking at are laser scans of the apse proportions of cathedrals in northern France assembled by Stephen Murray in order to do a comparison. And again, without the visual expression being put into this kind of a system of comparative uh, size, scale, and, and proportion, you cannot make the assessments that are made. So this is starting to feel a little bit propositional. There's a bit of a, I am proposing that this can be understood, generalized, and um, turned into some kind of uh, belief system. Right? Not just about the apses and their proportions, but about a way of knowing what the history of stylistic and technological innovations was in the building and construction of these cathedrals. So there's a lot more to be said about that. What else is inherent to the visual? What else is part of its, what I would consider, proper attributes as a mode of knowing? The capacity to register detail. Bertillon, uh, the French uh, detective and classifier, classification maker, came up with a way to classify features of the human anatomy um, according to systematic metrics so that the police records using photography and measures could be organized so that if you had 30,000 records in your police inventory, you could sort and track an individual by some detail. 
Now, this is an amazing accomplishment, and you can see here how complicated his system was. It had a whole set of cards um, and ways of taking measures, but also used photographic evidence. Um, and the photographic evidence was the basis of the production of the metric system. It wasn't that the photographs were just illustrations or auxiliaries to that. The experience that we have as um, living persons um, in this regard is that I would suggest to you that you can walk into an auditorium this size, and even if every seat in here were filled, if you were looking for your companion and you knew who your companion was that evening, all you would need to do is see this much of them to know that that was who they were that the specificity through which we actually determine identity is so highly developed within our capacity to perceive, cognize, match, sort, and act upon, right? So it's, it's a very highly developed um, area of, of human cognitive processing. We were always amazed that the baby bats can recognize their mothers, excuse me. Um, you know, visual acuity is highly developed in uh, all sp many species and develops differently in different species, um, as we know from the work of J.J. Gibson, the great ecological vision uh, person. Um, okay, so let's talk then for a few minutes as we're talking here about visuality, about the disciplines within which visual means have come to be, you know, absolutely essential instruments for the um, uh, first codification and recording of knowledge and then for the generation of knowledge. So for recording, botany, believe me, even if you have seen the fatal thread or whatever that awful thing is, um, uh, you do want to be able to tell one mushroom from another, okay? Um, and so the cost for botanical um, identification is high. You need to know what a plant is, what its properties are, in order not to um, commit some kind of uh, crime against yourself and others. The, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't the botanical. Um, uh, the face recognition was in here as a follow-up to Bertillon, sorry. Um, and uh, its use within um, uh, digital environments. And the point here really is that what has proved extremely difficult is to transfer the um, processing capabilities that human beings have into um, algorithmic uh, techniques, that, it's, uh, that our, our capacities are, are much more granular and far more refined, um, and that building systems that can imitate that is a non-trivial matter. Um, Okay, this was the image meant to be here while I was talking about botany. So, um, so the history of botany and the history of botanical illustration is filled with a relationship between observation, the technologies of production, image production, image reproduction, um, you know, faithfulness, um, you know, resemblance, and so forth. What, what are the technological impediments to accuracy? What are the visual um, acuities and skills that are required? What are the um, hand skills and so forth? But as we know, as I said before, um, it would seem to be a straightforward process to observe something and draw it. Here I have a plant. Here is its morphology. Here is its color tones. I will learn the skills of drawing and be able to reproduce it. But as, again, as it turns out, there is no innocent eye. If you do not know what you're looking at, even if you have it before you, you may draw it in a peculiar and distorted way based on your expectations. This is an elephant. This is an elephant, okay? And 
excuse me, but what is that elephant wrestling with? All right, have you ever seen a lizard that big? Okay, so, um, so but the point is that we have documented examples of, of this inability to actually see what is um, presented to you if you have not got the uh, cognitive model to process the information with which you're being presented. Now, one of the things that's um, also interesting is to think about the rhetoric of these visual images, even when they're meant to be informational. Um, how do they present to us? What is their mode of address towards us? And images are not merely declarative, right? They may make a statement, as the image on the left appears to simply make a statement, but in that statement, they are assuming that there is a you in relationship to the um, spoken enunciative discourse of the image. The image is speaking. It is calling to you. It is making an address. So the nature of address is something that's also part of the visual as it is part of the verbal. Is it part of the mathematical? It's an interesting question. Do equations address us? Are they enunciative acts or are they merely declarative acts? And, and um, I don't have an answer for you. But the image on the right is rhetorically extremely complex, right? Here we have this fantastic, they're both fantastic drawings. Here we have this fantastic drawing by well, who, who, someone we think is a student um, of Titian. And, um, uh, and, and it, the image is of a hanged man, right? And so the image is actually justifying its violation of the human body on the basis that this violation is being done to a criminal body, right? So there's like a whole incredible, you know, set of things that could be talked about here. My point is not so much the specific thematics of this image, but that this is the case and that the rhetorical act that is expressed in the posture of this figure is embedded within a whole set of social and cultural conventions and understandings that is itself a set of um, knowledge conditions, right? So there are many aspects to the way in which this image is constructed um, that are not simply about the presentation of anatomy, but about the legitimacy of the act on which the anatomy is premised and so forth. So it's, it gets really interesting. Now, observation of the human form and of other forms begins to go beyond strict human capacity for observation and into mechanically enhanced and then digitally enhanced domains. So the visual becomes not simply that which is observed, but that which can be produced through a set of augmentary um, you know, extensions of the human capacity. This is Ben Schneiderman's um, image uh, of, the of the visible human. Um, this was a slice by slice by slice um, interface that allowed you to move through the human body, a human bo body, a real human body, to see how it is constructed at this you know, nano scale of increments. So we're seeing something that you would probably, that you would not be able to observe with the human eye, even under conditions of autopsy and so forth. Now we think about other modes of visualization that, are, that could never be seen by the human eye. If this is stretching what the human eye could do, right? 
this can never be seen by the human eye because it's a magnetic resonance imaging image, right? What you're seeing is, is, is has to do with, you know, the, a pattern created in, in, as a resonant pattern of resistance and return. So, oh, this is imaged, but it's not an image in the same sense. So exactly where do we put it in terms of representations? And then we um, think about things like x-rays as well, right? It's like seeing the unseen and presenting it as if it is an image. But it's not an image of observation. It's an image of processing that produces an image from which we can learn something and which we can enter into a relationship with. Um, then there are visualization tools in the current computational environment that even go beyond these imaging techniques. The imaging techniques allowed things that were not visual to be made visual. These scraps of the Dead Sea Scrolls were processed by a whole series of imaging technologies in Bruce Zuckerman's lab um, in, a, in his Inscriptifact project. And what he's able to do is to combine the capacities of MRIs and infrared and um, uh, you know sonograms and other kinds of scan techniques, and then pick out within their computational files the distinctive features that each one of those processes selects and amplifies in the sample, and then combine those computationally to produce an image as a result. So what you see on the left is the original burnt piece of cookie dough, right, that was the Dead Sea Scroll fragment, the tiny little things. And on the right is what you see after, um, in, after the processing. So it's a computational average that could not be done with any of these other techniques. So again, we are rendering visible all kinds of um, artifacts using material science and visualization and computational techniques um, to extend our range of that which becomes legible. So that's merely, um, again, a way to say, ah, the visual, visuality and representation have within them certain kinds of properties that make them useful in support of knowledge production and its record. Does that make it epistemology? Still a question. Heisenberg, this is not Heisenberg. It's interesting to look for manuscripts of Heisenberg online. It's interesting how they don't exist. It's interesting how the one Heisenberg manuscript that sold for a huge amount of money is blurred out in its representation in the online image. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, because I'm going to fake it, right? Um, okay, so one of the things that Heisenberg famously says when he's uh, questioned by somebody about his notes, right? And here, I'm sorry, I had to substitute Einstein for Heisenberg. It's a terrible crime. Um, but anyway, um, when Heisenberg was asked by somebody who said, hey, there's your notes. They're the record of your, uh, of your work. And he said, no, they're not the record of my work. They are the work. That is where the work happens. And again, for him, again, what he was asserting was that the making of those 
formula and the drawing through of the proofs and the working out was the work. It was generative. It wasn't a surrogate. It wasn't a representation. It was the work itself. And again, this is one of the sort of pushbacks um, against the, the notion that the visual has no in, inherent um, function in generating knowledge. We know from the work of Peter Gallison and Lorraine Daston and others um, that visuality plays several roles in scientific research, one of which is recording and representing the outcomes of research, and the other of which is to be the instrument for generating research, whether by modeling or by enacting or by performing in some way that is inherent to the production of an outcome. So the philosophers. The philosophers then, having decided that visuality has no place in epistemology, decide that nonetheless the visual might be useful for certain kinds of knowledge. What kinds of knowledge? What kinds of knowledge do you imagine looking at this? Moral knowledge. Oh, moral knowledge. Let's talk about moral knowledge. Very interesting. The original painting looked something like this, then it was altered, then it was restored. All right, again, and it, a whole essay, you know, begs to be written here about what restoration means and on whose terms and on what basis and so on and so forth. But the point is that, um, yes, moral knowledge does show here, plus a whole history of relationship to moral decisions about knowledge you know, what constitutes it, how it is transformed, at what moment something becomes taboo and then becomes untaboo, and how it's untabooing, its act of, of re-revelation and re-inscription becomes something very, very different from the original act of inscription. These, you know, so the, the, the depiction of these naked bodies after restoration is not the same as the depiction of the bodies before they were altered, right? Because it's against the background of a history of prohibition and transformation transformation and so forth. So all of these things become part of what the moral knowledge is that is encoded in these images. Absolutely. Is there another way to know this? Is there another way to actually see how these um, sort of uh, assertions about what constitutes moral and immoral behavior in an image or taboos can be constructed? No, it has to be done visually. There's no other way. Now, we know that moral knowledge takes other forms in images and becomes metaphoric, right? We can use images to display a value system, as we can with the Porphyrian tree, right? First uh, invented by Porphyry, trying to illustrate our Aristotle, and then first imaged, as far as we know, by Boethius. Um, it's the earliest image we have of the Porphyrian tree. Um, but again, the Porphyrian tree is starting to be diagrammatic, not merely representational. The difference between those two things is where a representational stands as a surrogate in relation to a structured form of knowledge. A diagram is generative and allows you to produce knowledge through an engagement with it. I'll show you another example of that in just a moment. But meanwhile, let's think about what the metaphor of the tree does. The tree image is one of the oldest symbols in human culture. It goes back to Babylonia um, and to anyway about the third uh, millennium uh, before the common era. So it's an old metaphor, metaphor of fertility um, and continuity. And then it gets used as an image of consanguinity, right? Common bloodlines. And here we see the tree of Jesse, right? A metaphoric, mythic 
but um, you know, persuasive image that suggests a bloodline continuity um, in uh, from Jesse to to Jesus, right? In this in this tree structure. So trees, as a graphical form, aren't simply a metaphor, but they carry all kinds of implications about the relations of one part of the expressed system to another. They uh, suggest derivation and continuity. So when we see a tree like this as the tree of life, it suggests that there is a single common ancestor for all living forms, and that they branch off with continuity from each other in a hierarchy of lower and higher, and that this continuity is unbroken, that there are no jumps or breaks or leaps in the evolutionary cycle. So again, the, the, the rhetoric of the image is extremely strong here. I would argue that it is also propositional. It is suggesting that a certain belief has a particular justification, that it should be read um, through the image in a structured and specific way. The tree structure then becomes part of the network diagrams, uh, the spoke and hub with its uh, branches and, and trunks, though it's a distributed rather than hierarchical system. But again, the question about what are the relations, how do we read them, what's the semantics of the image, and what's its argument um, are, are present here in part as a legacy of its relationship to tree structures. But as I said to you before, a couple minutes ago, diagrams and uh, representations are not the same. A picture of a tree, and even the use of a tree as a tree of life, is very different from a diagrammatic structure. The diagrammatic structures you see here, um, the square of opposition, um, very old form, and uh, classical antiquity, and then the, um, the, the forms that come out of the work of Raymond Lull, the medieval logician, um, adapted by Athanasius Kircher, great Renaissance polymath, um, in order to express the combinatoric um, structure of uh, the great art of knowing in his mid-17th century book, are generative forms. They are meant for contemplation. They are meant to be used over and over again in order to generate new solutions. And when Lull designed his combinatoric diagrams, many of them had to do with the attributes of God, and you were meant to meditate upon them, moving back and forth um, among the different attributes as a generative uh, meditation, as a kind of um, you know, religious practice. So a diagram has a generative capacity that is a knowledge-producing system rather than simply a knowledge representation system. And that distinction is very important. Again, it's, it's central to the work of, of, of people like Allison and Daston in the way they see um, images working in the scientific world. So what I've been trying to uh, touch on here um, then very briefly, and then I'm going to flip over to talk about the humanities in a minute, um, is to answer the question, what kinds of knowledge do visual images encode? Do they have a specificity in the way that they do it that really inheres in no other form? And I think we would argue yes. You might argue that, okay, that's fine. Images can represent knowledge. They might even be able to generate knowledge, right? And here we have, you know, an interesting contrast, right? Here we have Rembrandt painting himself and we have Rembrandt painting portraits 
of an anatomy lesson. Two very different engagements with concepts of knowledge as a visual um, exercise and as a visual, you know, sort of set of propositions. The first proposition that Rembrandt is giving us, right, and this is where I say, mm, I think images go beyond mere representation, and they're not just diagrammatic, but they are propositional. In the first image, the portrait, Rembrandt is saying to us that, the, that he is really proposing the possibility of a self-portrait. This is the self, and it is able to be made into a portrait. Now, this is a really interesting notion. He, it's not just I'm painting a mirror image of myself. I'm painting a semblance of myself. I am painting myself. What does it mean to paint oneself? How, how is the self even available to be painted? What is a self? So there are many questions that inhere in the notion of the self-portrait. And then it's composition, it's shaded eyes, it's, you know, whole relationship to vision, visuality, and being seen. But the reason I put it into contrast with the anatomy lesson is that the kind of portrait that Rembrandt paints of himself is so different than the portraits he paints of the medical figures in the anatomy lesson. In the anatomy lesson, he is giving you their identities. He is showing you their physiognomy. They are painted as individuals with specific characteristics and even almost as types. And so the portraiture in the anatomy lesson is clinical, it's physiological, it is specific um, to the persons, and it's descriptive. But in his self-portrait, we have a very much more complex relationship between the imaging process and the depiction and the identity of the character. In the anatomy lesson, the identity in the portraits is taken as a given. I am showing you them as figures whose physiognomy will identify them and their identity is their physiognomy for this instant. They are recognizable. Whereas the portrait of the self is a much more complex set of relations. And it's not by accident that the portrait in, that the um, anatomy portrait is also a portrait in which anatomy is shown, right? It's like the same notion of knowledge and knowing is that this is knowledge that can be codified. It can be seen, and through its seeing, it can be made visible. And by being made visible, it can be acted upon, it can be used, it can be conventionalized. So really significant rhetorical gestures on, on Rembrandt's part. Okay, enough about visuality for the moment. Let's turn our attention then to the digital and to digital humanities and to the problem we confront in an era of data and data visualization. If the Mona Lisa's or the Mona's Lisa or the Mona's Lisa's um, that we looked at at the beginning were one kind of aggregate, here we have another. Um, and this is, you know, a page from Dataflow, a wonderful site, um, in which we get to see a whole variety of different data visualizations, as they're called, data visualizations. Now, data visualizations are ubiquitous. We see them everywhere. We use them. We rely on them. And they have strong uh, rhetorical force. And as we were saying at lunch today, I think there is also an urgency about recognizing the ethical and moral responsibility we have for taking apart the way in which these um, data visualizations function um, without any accountability to the process of their production um, in our culture. So 
Let's start then with a few, well, I'm just gonna make a few remarks about data visualization and then um, wrap up by uh, returning to one uh, set of examples, a kind of through line on cartography and mapping to talk about what I mean by humanistic methods. So let's talk about data visualization for a second. The classic things to say about data visualization, and they're true, I mean, true. Um, uh, yeah, in the humanities, we gave up on that. Um, okay, quite a while ago. Um, but they're verifiable. Um, the, um, the, the classic things to say are that if you have a pattern of numbers like this, okay, so here you have a pattern of numbers. Um, there may be some among you who are sort of visio maths and, you know, can kind of see what the pattern was here. But basically, most people will not see a pattern. Well, you turn the pattern into a graphic, and you can see what a pattern is. You can see what the relationship between, I think this is, um, uh, this is the rising and falling of wages and the cost of wheat um, across uh, a, a time period in England. So you, turn the, you take the numbers, you turn them into a graphical pattern, and it allows you to see, in a glance, certain features within the data set, i.e. the numbers, that were not graspable before you had this kind of a gestalt, right? So the gestalt is the capacity to really see the pattern and the whole. Fine, the fact that this graph is filled with problems, multiple metrics, different time scales, all kinds of things, that's a minor matter. I mean, that's something we could tease out, we do in an information visualization class. But the point is, is easily made, right? That, that that's what the graphics do. That's what data visualizations do. But there's a problem. And here we come to my, you know, sort of messed up crumbling data wall, right? The thing that's falling apart. And that is that um, what we can't see in this or in this are the specific data points the decision points, the way in which the life cycle of data production uh, resulted in the data points that we have. Um, and for instance, very simple, very simple matter with data. What was your sampling cycle? What was your periodicity of sampling the data? So an example I always use is, if you're the registrar and you care about room use, but you happen to come from a nocturnal species, and you come into classrooms every night and take the measure of how many people are occupying the space, you would write to the administrators and say, there's a very low occupancy space in these classrooms. They could really handle a whole lot more traffic, right? So it matters when you take your sample, right? So these are fundamental statistics, but we have no idea when we're looking at the numbers or their graphical expression at what point, how the, how the data set was modeled, how it was executed, how it was designed, where the outliers were, what the flaws were, what the decision points were, and then what the decisions about the graphical expression might be. All of that information is completely concealed in a final statement that appears as a declarative statement. It's what I call a reification of misinformation or a, uh, a, a, a representation that is a complexly constructed image that passes itself off as a presentation. I'm just here. I'm self-evident. I am a statement of fact. So this is highly problematic um, in, in ethical ways because if you don't know what the original model was for the data um, or the sampling and so forth, you have no idea really what you're looking at. 
Now, there are data visualizations that make analogies to, um, that use an, an analogical correlation between a phenomenon and their own graphical form, and they have a different set of issues around them. This is Ben Fry's truly wonderful, amazing presentation of the six editions of Darwin's Origin of the Species, edited and revised over a 14-year period. It's a dynamic visualization. You can look at it online and interact with it, see what happened from the first to the second or the first to the fourth, um, or you can watch the editing process unfold. And because it's structured to resemble the structure of the book and its sections, it can also be used as an interface to those edits and transformations. So it's a terrifically conceived visualization, and in part because it is um, uh, respectful of the um, object that it is representing and representing. So again, it has a kind of corollary there. We see why it's doing what it's doing. Um, but in our standard everyday life, um, what we do is we rely on, on these conventions of graphs and, and visualizations, again, as if they simply are a statement of what is. So I can't tell you the number of times I've had people present me with a Google Ngram viewer like this one. Um, yes, and I think this is the comparison of the uh, rise and fall of the fortunes of the word writer, poet, uh, poetess, and um, uh, anyway, a few other terms, um, between 1800 and uh, 2000. So for 200 years, uh, we're going to see, you know, what happened um, to those terms. Now, the one thing that this isn't is a history of those terms and their use. The only thing it is is a graph of which versions of those terms the Google Ngram algorithm picks out from the highly selective set of texts that exist within Google that are searchable as full text searches and therefore produce these results. Right? So it's not a history of those terms. It's, a, it's merely an artifact of that particular set of algorithmic procedures. So it's fine if you understand it that way, but if you say, I'm doing work on the, I'm doing culturenomics, and I'm taking a look at the history of the term poetess to see how it's gone, this is not a result you can rely on, right? It has, it has, it has no credibility as cultural work. I'm sorry, Mr. Moretti. Okay. Not sorry, actually. Okay. So, um, so again, uh, data points have a life cycle, right? Books have a life cycle. Um, words have to be understood in context. Uh, Wittgenstein, you all don't read Wittgenstein, um, but um, uh, Wittgenstein, a word's meaning is its use, right? It's, it's, you know, as I'm trying to explain to my students, you don't know what common sense means when Thomas Paine uses that term. It doesn't mean the same thing that common sense means now. You have to return the term to the conditions of its original conception and production as much as we can to understand how that term comes to have a particular valence within um, the moment of its creation. So again, looking at the life cycle of data points, um, it, it, it's going to look much more like the, the graph on, on the right than it is on the left. Contingencies, complications, and so forth. It's like, oh, it's too complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. 
All right, so, so that's my sort of scree against data uh, visualization. And again, for me, this is an ethical issue, um, that data presentations, data visualizations conceal as much as they reveal, but they get read as artifacts as if they are making statements of evident fact, and they're not. All right, so how do we redress that? Again, I think through complicating the picture and making sure that documentation, at the very least, of the uh, production of the data, its model, its sampling techniques, and so forth, are all made explicit in relationship to the image. So in a sense, it's a little bit, you know, kind of going against what I was arguing for earlier, which is now I'm saying, well, these visuals cannot be trusted, and they should not be used as um, forms of epistemology. But they are, nonetheless, um, uh, images that are much in use uh, and on which policy decisions, allocation of resources, and other kinds of, um, you know, sort of um, actions are taken. All right. Okay. Let's finish up then and wrap this, uh, wrap this um, to a conclusion. I've been trying to suggest that Number one, there are modes of visuality and aspects of visuality that um, both uh, present and represent knowledge in ways that are specific to visual um, expressions that cannot be duplicated by any other form of human expression or notation. There's a reason why we carry around a photograph of a dear one in our, on our possession, and do not just simply write the name of the dear one on a piece of paper and carry it with us. I'm serious, right? There, 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 is a, there are properties to the visual um, that are specific to it that allow us to process cognitively, affectively, emotionally, um, culturally, in ways that are completely different from that of mathematical notation or linguistic notation. So that would be my first argument, that there is an inherency to visuality that cannot be replicated by other forms of knowledge, recording, and notation. Secondly, I really do believe that knowledge, that visual um, images not only produce knowledge, but are records of knowledge production. And um, I'll show you that with, with the maps as I move through the final part of, of my remarks. Um, before I do that, I want to return to the image of the, the two images of the Rembrandt to say, uh, by Rembrandt, to say that I do believe that images are propositional, that they are asserting beliefs that can be tested and, 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 and if not justified as truth, verified, examined, and engaged with, um, both rhetorically and logically, um, for the way in which they are making statements about how we understand the world and understand our knowing of the world. So in finishing with the maps then, um, what I'd like to say is that maps are in many cases a record not so much of knowledge only, though they do that, but often of the way in which knowing comes into being and becomes recorded to reshape um, the cartographic uh, structures. 
So if we think about medieval maps, the famous TO maps, right? These are structured around an, a Christian iconography of the cross. And they put Jerusalem at the center of the, uh, of the T and the O. And they construct a, a vision of the world um, that matches a Christian iconography, um, as well as the then um, sort of full extent of knowledge of, uh, um, of Asia, North Africa, and Europe. So the three continents are depicted, and the Mediterranean Sea, and so forth. So again, the knowledge construct conforms to the conceptual paradigm, the model that is itself embedded in a belief system. So the knowledge is, is, is kind of shaped by the belief system rather than the other way around. This is the world from a medieval worldview. Now, Herodotus and the ancients also had their own notion of, uh, of the geography of the world um, earlier than Christian iconography. What I like about this particular image, it's, it's a later map. It's um, obviously not an, uh, a map from, from classical antiquity. It's how much it looks like a brain, right? It's like Herodotus's brain um, and how he, he thought the world. Um, so again, what's interesting um, here is you know, how non-knowledge is portrayed how the edge of knowledge um, is shown. At what point does, uh, does the claim to what we know cease and therefore have to be shown? Right? Where, 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 where don't I know? How don't I know? So knowing is in some sense embodied here. We know that Ptolemy's uh, work in cartography um, transforms uh, the um, you know, understanding of the, the problems of projection um, of a, a round earth onto a flat surface and also rationalizes that surface in ways that hold sway for more than a thousand years. Um, but uh, again, what's interesting is that Ptolemy's work, as has been demonstrated dramatically in the wonderful Digital Humanities Project of Leif Isaacson, the Ptolemy's understanding of geography was also an, an understanding of the experiential relationship to land and movement around it. That Ptolemy's main data points and what Isaacson has done is to go back through um, Ptolemy's uh, Geographia and map the data points from the linguistic references and then show that Ptolemy's construction of geography had to do with edges, rivers, ports, and other kinds of features, and that therefore it was grounded in certain kinds of narratives of experience and um, you know, reports on that experience that he synthesized. So again, it's about knowing. It's about a way of knowing um, land and territory, not merely a kind of picture of it. So it's in some sense really not representational. It's not a picture of the earth. It's a picture of knowing the earth, how it is known. And that I think is very interesting. As the exploration of the world expands our understanding or the understanding um, of what constitutes the uh, territories and geographies um, that can be mapped, we watch that process of knowing get recorded. So on this Wald Sealer map, which is uh, from 1507, the first use of the term America on a printed map, we, we see the edges of the North and, and South Americas um, coming into being. It's like, well, we don't know quite what it is, but we know it's there. We know it has this kind of extension. We know it has this kind of coastline. We, have, we know, you know, it's, it's how many years of, of exploration at that point? Fifteen, 
right? So this is the record of 15 years, like nothing, of people traveling across the Atlantic in little tiny boats and trying to figure out, you know, like the blind man and the elephant, what it is they are actually encountering. So this is an incredible sort of record of that partial knowledge. And in that sense, I think it's deeply humanistic. It's rooted in observation and experience, cultural limitations and historical, you know, sort of uh, moments. Um, uh, again, we could keep tracking this. Here's William Blau with a more extended um, understanding of the New World and its specific geographical features. Of course, all continents get filled in, first from the coastlines and then through the river points of entry, and then in some of their features, but large areas of the interior remain unknown because, again, it's experiential and it's encounters, it's ways of knowing that are being you know, sort of codified into cartographic uh, presentation. And, you know, and then we shift our, our attention, you know, and, and our engagement into a digital world of mapping where so much is given as an a priori that then the crimes against knowledge get amplified, in fact, um, and become sort of amazing. So, um, so we get the, the problem of the pin, right? The ubiquitous pin in the map, right? Well, how many things actually take place in a pinpoint? Like, what is the size of a pinpoint? What is the territory of a pinpoint? Um, what's the influence? You know, it's, it's a very interesting kind of approach to geography and to space to, like, pin something. Um, but, uh, and, and what are the reference points? So here we have um, a very interesting project, in fact, which is the history of emancipation and the discourse on emancipation in the American South. And here we have geographical locations mapped that come out of a data set. And the question is, what do these geographical locations mean? If I say to you something took place in Annapolis, is that sufficient? Did it take place in East, West, historic, on the edges of? What if it took place in New York City, right? Block to block in New York City, you're in a different set of cultural conditions and demographics and so forth. So what's a pin on a map mean? How do we, how do we actually interpret the data once we put it into visual form? And my favorite version of this is the heat map. The heat map that where it's like, oh, you get a lot of data points, so you let it swell up, right? I guess like, you know, heat map is the intellectual equivalent of having your brain stung by a bee, right? It turns into a blur, a complete undifferentiated mass of non-useful, I won't even call it information, right? I mean, it is, it, it's, somebody explained to me the legibility and usefulness of such a, a monstrosity. Okay, so my point is that the, the, the problem with the digital as opposed to, you know, Waldseeler and Blau and Ptolemy is they were careful, right? They put down what they thought they knew. And here, the automatic generation of information um, into graphical form means that we get these um, uh, aberrations. Um, and of course, the biggest aberration of all is Google Maps and Google Earth. It's daylight all the time, everywhere on Earth, 24 hours a day. The full globe is in full sunlight, of course. Um, Copernicus, you need to come back. We've got some work to do here. Okay. Um, so again, the, the, the digital becomes an instrument, again, of, of all kinds of, of reifications of misinformation and, and misperception. Um, the last two slides here um, are part of my argument then for uh, humanistic methods to pull this together. 
I do think that the visual um, can serve epistemological functions. I think it does. I think it is a unique and specific form of knowledge production and codification at the perceptual level, the cognitive, and at the representational and encoded. Um, and I would argue that across all kinds of um, performances and engagements with visuality, um, whether it's the, the visual form of, of, of language or the visual form of images, iconography, records, representations, diagrams, performative images, or presentational ones. Um, but I also think that one of the charges um, to us as humanists, and this comes back to my role within the digital humanities, is to find conventions that allow us to encode um, the humanistic observer-dependent position as a fundamental method um, to argue that the hermeneutic has as much authority as the empirical, and that to identify the place from which um, uh, works are, uh, images are produced, knowledge is produced, and its record is constructed is an essential aspect of undoing the claims to universality that we know have been abusive within the history of Western culture and its colonization and expansions, but also mask for us the conditions of production of knowledge that are essential to its constitution. Right? If we suggest, as I would, because I'm a constructivist through and through, that knowledge constitutes its, um, that knowing constitutes the objects of knowledge, it does not merely apprehend them, then to have ways of showing those processes becomes all the more important. One of the ways of showing them is encoded in this particular map. This is a, a map by Bill Carden and I forget, uh, David Lloyd, uh, I, I forget their names. This is a map that shows the shape of England redrawn um, according to time of travel from London. So again, the geography um, is always is produced here as the result of a factor. What is the factor? Space is not simply a given. Space is spatiality. It's constructed according to um, an experiential parameter, um, an affective parameter, or a value statement, something. Um, in fact, if we truly drew the size of England by distance from London, the out lying last miles would stretch and, and extend um, the, the sort of, you know, form of this even further. There'd be places that almost went to infinity in terms of how long it took to get from London. Um, so, but anyway, it's, it's a very different approach to, to mapping, right? It's what's called non-representational um, cartography. Um, it roots the uh, presentation of, of geography in experience rather than making a map and, po and popping experience into it as if space existed um, as a container for experience. Instead, it assumes that space is made by experience. Geography and territory are an effect of experience as much as they are a given. It's not that the landscape's not there, or that the land's not there, or the features aren't there. Of course they are. But the shape of the landscape is in relation to an experiential parameter. Um, so um, I'll put this image on the screen as the sort of final image as I just summarize again. Um, that the, uh, and this is a, a, a transformation of a very famous image, which is on the left, which is Dr. Snow's diagram um, of tracking typhoid cases and their outbreak back to a pump 
in a part of London in order to, um, as part of a kind of early epidemiology study, start to understand, oh, how is typhoid communicated? What's going on here? Oh, it was the water. Oh, that means this. Oh, that means that. And it, was a, it made it possible to begin to contain the epidemic. But in, in looking at data points um, from that point of view, as important as they are, um, it leaves out um, m much of the rest of the story, which is that each of those data points of an outbreak is an individual human being living a life, um, maybe with a family, maybe with responsibilities, maybe with other conditions, maybe as part of some other elaborate social system, and that those many other factors also play their role in the epidemic of the typhoid. Um, and that knowing what those were um, is a humanistic concern um, to understand how the relationship between data and the lived experience of human lives can be correlated in some way to look at a larger picture. And so um, while I'm on the one hand wanting to say that I do assert, as I've now done numerous times, um, the authority of the visual as an epistemological um, realm, I also want to um, sort of assert the need for a humanistic approach to um, the use of the visual within the data and data humanities, digital humanities domains um, as an ethical principle as we begin to think about what the role of the rhetoric of persuasion has um, in our use of these uh, visualizations um, in our daily and political and social lives. So I'll stop there and see what thoughts you have. Thank you.